Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Awaken. I'm Jenna. If we haven't met, I'm the executive pastor here. If you are new, a special welcome to you. We would love to know that you were here. Um, you can go onto the website and fill out a connections card. We would love to have a conversation and get to know you a little bit better. Um, today, we wanted to start by acknowledging the significance of this day. The second Sunday of March, a year ago, was actually the last time that we met together in this building. Um, so we wanted to just name the significance that it has been an entire year um, where we have been apart and a lot of life has happened for so many of us in this past year, both tragic and wonderful. Babies have been born, uh, relationships have changed, loved ones have been lost, dreams have been dreamed about and birthed uh, in a quarantine. Um, so we wanted to just like I said, start today by acknowledging that our lives have kept going even though we've been apart from each other. Um, but maybe more importantly, we wanted to start uh, by saying thank you. The fact that we are still here, uh, this community called Awaken, is in large part because of your participation. Um, and so I am not going to be able to name everyone um, but there are a few who are worth highlighting. Uh, I'll do my best to not make this sound like an award speech, but I can make no promises. Um, first, I wanted to thank our staff. Um, we have been having a lot of conversations and reflecting on what church has been, all the different iterations of this past year. Moments of discouragement, um, sometimes even despair, if we're being honest moments of energy and creativity together. Um, but a huge thank you to the staff who have worked really hard. Um, I think something that we have tried to do is instead of attempting to recreate something that we all miss, um, we've tried our best to reinvent and to pay attention to what God might be forming in us through a pandemic. Um, to our advisory team and core team, Thank you for faithfully leading us and being incredible supports. To people who have volunteered, who have made meals, who have lent expertise, who have made cards, who have checked in on one another, who have played in a band, um, and everything in between. Thank you so much for showing up and um, participating. Um, to our worship planning team, which is primarily staff, but these gatherings that have been formed, um, it's not just one person in a room, it's collaborative. It's uh, asking like what needs to be said and how do we need to say it and where do we go from here? Um, to our artists, thank you for lending your voices and your creativity. To those who have participated in any way financially, thank you. It is not lost on us, the fact that we have been able to pay staff and guarantee that income. We have been able to provide multiple gifts from our benevolence fund. We've been able to support organizations through our missional giving. And the fact that we can say that we are planning for another year of ministry without fretting, without having had to make hard decisions, 
um, because of our financial situation, thank you. That means the world to all of us. Um, so thank you to you. Thank you to God uh, for the ways that you have participated in Awaken. Um, wanted to start with a call to worship from a book. It's called The Rhythm of Prayer. Uh, it's new, edited by Sarah Bessie, but a compilation of really incredible and brilliant voices. Um, this one is entitled, A Prayer to Learn to Love the World Again, by Sarah Bessie. God of herons and heartbreak, teach us to love the world again. Teach us to love extravagantly, knowing it may, it will, break our hearts, and teach us that it is worth it. God of pandemics and suffering ones, teach us to love the world again. God of loneliness and longing, of bushfires and wilderness, of soup kitchens and border towns, of snowfall and children. Teach us to love the world again. Amen. Well, in light of the uh, anniversary that it is, um, I was doing some digging back into what we did the last time we were here together, and the last song that we actually sang together in this room, we are going to sing right now. And I thought, um, as I reflected on the words, I thought it was really interesting that this is what we sang together. So um, I hope this is a meaningful remembrance for those of you that were here that day. And um, think of this as a prayer that we prayed, uh, not knowing what we were heading into a year ago, but also a prayer that we're praying right now um, as we are in the place that we are. Let's sing this together.
Sing now in glad adoration 
It is so fun to be here. Um, like Jenna and Mel said, it is so hard to believe that it has been a year since we have been together in this building. Now, I am so curious what you would answer to these questions. You can talk about it with your family. Um, what has been special about doing church at home? What has been special about that? And then what do you miss about being here? I know I miss seeing you guys, but I'm also so glad we've been able to stay connected and that we can continue to learn more about ourselves and about God during this time. And I hope that you're feeling the same. I hope that you're learning and experiencing um, God at home as much as you would here. Um, so today, we are going to get out our eggs. You guys have wooden eggs in your boxes. If you have not taken these out yet, you can do that now and hold it while I'm talking, or you can do it after I'm done. So I want to talk a little bit about the egg before I tell you what we're going to do with the egg. Why do we use eggs at Easter time? Why do we see eggs around us? Why do we, why do we have egg hunts? Why do we dye eggs and make them different colors? Why do we get eggs in our baskets on Easter morning? Does anyone know? Well, at Easter, we use eggs as a symbol of new life. Think about an egg. Where does it come from? What is the process of an egg turning into life? Now that's assuming that we don't eat the egg first. A lot of animals make eggs, but we are gonna specifically think about a chicken's egg, because that's kind of what this looks like. And we do eat them. Some of you even raise them, um, raise chickens, and then eat the eggs. But what if we didn't eat them? What is the process of the life of this, starting from an egg, and then what happens to it? It becomes alive, right? The chicken lays on the egg, keeps it warm, protects it until it hatches, and then new life comes from it. A baby chick comes, and then that chick grows into an adult chicken. Now, going back to the idea that the egg symbolizes new life, what does that have to do with Easter? Talk about that a little bit with your family. I bet many of you know, but some of you might not. Take some time to think about that. Lent is a time that we journey to the cross. We've been talking a lot about Lent. We're in week four of Lent. We take time learning about God's love through his son, Jesus. Jesus, who was crucified and died on the cross and then buried in the tomb and becomes alive again through the resurrection, through God's power and God's love for us and his plan to save us from our sins. Jesus is alive. The process of an egg can resemble Jesus' time in the tomb and then the new life that is experienced in his resurrection. New life is celebrated at Easter and actually in a variety of ways. An egg is just one way we can celebrate new life or remember new life. Where else can we see new life around us? Well, outside, right? Are you paying attention to what the sunshine is doing? Are you starting to see the grass? Are you starting to see maybe plants change a little bit? Slowly, we're going to start to see new life around us in this season of spring as it gets warmer. The trees are going to keep changing. The seeds and plants that were under the ground and frozen and dead are going to come back to life. There's going to be new life. And 
I think some of us have felt a little bit of new life, right? I know the sunshine has made me feel a lot more energy, and I bet it has for you too. We get to experience all of this during the season of Lent, the journey of Lent. Isn't it amazing how God created all of this, all of us, to, to show this new life? For example, this egg, how it can resemble the new life of Jesus in, his, in the tomb and the resurrection. I think it's pretty amazing that God allows us to experience new life throughout all of the things that we do. So these eggs, what you get to do today or this week is decorate it. So I want you to find paints, maybe the paints you got in the box a few months ago, or maybe you wanna use crayons or markers. You get to decorate this egg however you want. And then you can even play the game that it talks about in the box, how you can hide it and see if someone can find it. And maybe that person will get to keep it for the week, or maybe you're gonna keep playing the game. It's kind of fun to hide these wooden eggs. And when you, when you paint and decorate this egg, I want you to think about what we talked about. Think about that new life. And then what are you gonna do with this egg? Is it something you might keep on your desk or keep on the counter for throughout Lent? and maybe keep each Easter. So take your time and decorate that. All right, last week we talked about writing a letter of advocacy. What did you decide to write about? I would love to hear, we would love to hear all about what you wrote about. And maybe you even just wrote someone to say thank you. Maybe you've already seen some change and you wanted to acknowledge that and let that person know how grateful you are. We would love to hear your thoughts and your ideas on that. And this week, I am challenging you to write a letter to yourself. Now, that might seem a little easier than having to write to someone else, or maybe it'll be a little harder. I'm not sure. You can choose to write to maybe your younger self. Maybe when you were younger, maybe you've learned things and you've discovered things along the way that you want to tell your younger self about, or maybe you want to write to your older self. Maybe you want to write to yourself in five years or 10 years. What do you want your future self to know? What makes you happy and brings joy? What is hard and you hope you learn to do better in that amount of time in your future self? Or what great ideas do you have about your future now that you don't want your future self to forget? What is inside of you that is excited that you want to share with your future self? Maybe who do you want to be? What values or traits do you have that you want to always have? Remember those affirmations we talked about a few weeks ago? Maybe that's what you want to tell your older self. Write those affirmations again and remind your older self who you are and who you want to be. This book has been a, a really fun one in our house this month. It's called Little Dreamers. And you know, I, I'm not going to read much out of it, but it has reminded me that so many important people, world changers, even just regular day-to-day -day people, they started their journey when they were kids. They started learning about whatever they're passionate about when they were kids, or their parents influenced them, or the people around them influenced them. And so I thought it kind of tied in with what we're doing with this letter because it starts now. We are always becoming, we are always 
on a journey, whether we're three or 10 or 47. We are on a journey and we are always becoming. And guess what? God has big plans for you. God has big plans for me. God has big plans for all of us. And it can start at any age. We continue to learn and grow and change and bring light and love along the way. We experience hard things that will make us better, change us. You're all becoming, all of us adults are also becoming because God is so good and he doesn't ever stop loving us and changing us and shaping us and showing us the way. So I hope that when you write this letter, you can remember that and think about your future self or maybe your younger self and how God has helped us become that or how God's going to continue helping to become your future self. And then also this week, have fun decorating your eggs, nurturing your plants, and I also wanted to remind you the Lord's Prayer. Keep working on that. And this actual sheet that's in your box, there's enough for each of your family members. I want you to take time this week as you pray this prayer to paint or color or create and make it beautiful. So you can hang it up or send it to someone who you think would love it. But that is why this is on such a perfectly white piece of paper for you to decorate it and add color and beauty. I hope you guys all have an awesome week. All right. Thank you, Mandy. Let's sing the song of blessing over our kids before we move on. May God give you eyes to see all that is good, all that is good. The courage for anything. May you be strong, may you be strong. May God give you ears to hear His loving voice, His loving voice speaking all around you, all around and deep. friends, good morning. My name's Micah, if we haven't met. I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken. I'd like to welcome you to our gathering. I dressed up today. It is today, not when you're watching this, but today is International Women's Day. So um, to honor the women in my life, my wife, my three daughters, well, my dog is a female. I have four female chickens. Do they count? I don't know. I just live with all these red-headed women. Um, but that's not the point of why I brought that up. The point is, it's International Women's Day. So to all the women in the world, strong women, confident women, women who lead and add value, we're grateful for your presence in our lives. Um, I'd also just like to say that Jenna did forget two very important people in our list, in our uh, awards list of thank yous. And that is our producer, Nick Eggert, who you never see. Nick is in the back of the room. He's always there faithfully. His, his sidekick, Toby, is often with him, Toby Groves. Not tonight, but uh, Nick and Toby make all the audio sound as good as it sounds. So um, thank you to them. And then also to Josie, who is behind the camera. You never see her. Um, more often than not, she's standing there, either that or Chris or Krista, others who have, have subbed in. But thank you um, to you who have helped make this weekly thing happen time and time again grateful to you. 
Um, today is the fourth week of Lent, so welcome back. I'm glad you're here. Um, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church that wasn't terribly liturgical. We didn't really celebrate the church calendar, and so I've only been really interested in Lent or, or uh, celebrating Lent for maybe a decade, a little longer. Um, and I found it to be so uh, rich and alive. Uh, traditionally, Lent is the 40 days before Easter, not counting Sundays. And it comes from a Greek word, uh, which had to do with the number 40. Um, and then, uh, you know, as, as time moves on and we get to the Middle Ages and language changes, we get this word from the Germanic languages, which is Lenten or Lent, which connects to spring and the days getting longer. Um, traditionally, there were three common practices in Lent, and they all had to do with justice. Uh, so there was prayer, which was justice to, for, uh, towards God. There was fasting, justice towards oneself, and then almsgiving. Think Robin Hood, you know, uh, alms for the poor. Uh, and that was justice towards your neighbor. Um, and in Lent, we journey towards something. We intentionally prepare our hearts and uh, our minds, our bodies even, for something that we anticipate is coming. It's often a reordering of priorities and making space for something that we anticipate to come. Think of Jesus who prepared himself before he went into ministry, spent 40 days in the desert being tempted by the Satan and uh, uh, fasted for 40 days. And so Jesus himself did this. And so we too take our journey into the desert because we believe that the desert is often a place where God will speak and we hope to hear God's voice. And so um, welcome back to Lent. I hope your journey has been going well. Um, we also continue our series, The Power of a Letter. We've been looking at letters written by people to those they cared about who may have been distant from them. I thought about calling this series From a Distance. You guys remember that old, like, 80s, you know, um, I don't even know who's saying that. From a distance. <laughs> Melody killed that really fast, though. So we, we ended up with The Power of a Letter, whatever. Um, but in week one, we looked at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Um, two weeks ago, some of our own folks wrote letters to our church, which was so lovely. Grateful for that. Last week, we looked at Dr. Martin Luther King and the letter from his, uh, from his stay in the Birmingham jail in 1963. And today, we turn our attention to Maya Angelou's, uh, actually, it's a collection of essays called A Letter to My Daughter. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, my guy, Maya Angelou didn't even have any daughters. And you're right, she didn't. Um, but she did write this book because there were a lot of women around the world who thought of her as a mother figure. And so she wrote this book, a collection of essays, um, called A Letter or Letter to My Daughter. And so uh, I'm going to read just an excerpt from the first essay of the book. It's entitled Home. And that will be our sort of jumping off point for our time this morning. So from A Letter to My Daughter by Maya Angelou, she writes, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. But from the age of three, I grew up in Stamps, Arkansas, with my paternal grandmother, Annie Henderson, my father's brother, Uncle Willie, and my only sibling, my brother, Bailey. At 13, I joined my mother in San Francisco. Later, I studied in New York City. And throughout the years, I've lived in Paris, Cairo, West Africa, and all over the United States. Those are the facts. But facts, to a child, are merely words to memorize. My name is Johnny Thomas. My address is 220 Center Street. All facts which have little to do with the child's truth. My real growing up in Stamps was a continual struggle against a condition of surrender. Surrender first to the grown-up human beings who I saw every day, all black and all very, very large. Then submission to the idea that black people were inferior to white people, who I saw rarely. 
Without knowing why exactly, I did not believe that I was inferior to anyone except maybe my brother. I knew he was smart, or I knew I was smart, but I also knew that Bailey was smarter. Maybe because he reminded me often and even suggested that maybe he was the smartest person in the world. He came to that decision when he was nine years old. The South in general, and Stamps, Arkansas in particular, had hundreds of years of experience in demoting even large adult blacks to psychological dwarfs. Poor white children had the license to address lauded and older blacks by their first names or by any means, any names they could create. I'm convinced that most people do not grow up. We find parking spaces and honor our credit cards, we marry and dare to have children, and we call that growing up. I think we do this, I think what we do is mostly grow old. We carry an accumulation of years in our bodies and on our faces, but generally our real selves, the children inside, are still innocent and shy as magnolias. Pray with me. God, this morning as we spend some time together thinking about this letter, um, and gathered as your church, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak a word of encouragement and exhortation, challenge, uh, invitation to us to move towards uh, who you were, Jesus, who you are, and the life that you've called us to. I pray this in the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. And the church said together, amen. So this morning, I want to take some time to slow down. And I want to pause and think about a, an idea that is often very near and dear to my heart as a pastor. Uh, It comes from this last paragraph of Angelou's essay where she says, I am convinced that most people do not grow up. We marry and have kids and go out to our jobs, etc. And we call that growing up. I think what we do is mostly grow old. I was thinking about that. You know, in a world where uh, increasing, in a world that is increasingly in need of people who are growing up, I want to pursue, I want to pause this morning and ask a few questions about what does it mean to become spiritually mature? What does it mean to grow up and not just grow old? I was reading this article by The New Yorker this last week entitled The Wasting of the Evangelical Mind, which is fascinating, highly recommend it. And they cited a recent survey conducted by the American Enterprise Institute that said that more than one quarter of white evangelicals believe, actually believe, that Donald Trump has been secretly battling a group of child sex traffickers that include prominent Democrats and Hollywood elites. This, of course, is the basis, if you can call it that, of the QAnon conspiracy theory. One quarter of white evangelicals in this study actually believed this was true. Like... How on earth does a tradition with names like Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, Karl Barth, um, Thomas Merton, C.S. Lewis, Reinhold Niebuhr, we could go on. How does a tradition with names like that come to be described by many in our day as anti-intellectual, where faith and reason are antipodes? Like, they cancel each other out. You can't have both. How is that possible? Mark Knoll uh, wrote a book in 1994 that I actually had to buy in undergrad. It was called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. In it, he opens the book and says, and I quote, The scandal of the evangelical mind is there is not much of an evangelical mind. (laughs) The article goes on to argue that that's true, basically. But it wasn't always true that early in American history, American Christian history, that... uh, 
reason and intellect and science and philosophy that the pastor was often the most educated person and that there was a high value on these things. And somehow over time, and I won't go into all the details, that has decreased to the point where in 2020, when Christians opened the doors of the cupboards looking for intellect and reason, the cupboards were found bare. I'm only one pastor in a sea of pastors who teach and preach in Protestant Christian churches, but if I have anything to say about it, this critique will not be made of people who attend Awaken <laughs> over my dead body. I'm with Paul in this one. In his letter to Colossians, he writes in chapter 1, To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then he says, He's the one we proclaim, admonishing, teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that, this is the, this is the payout. He's like, this is why we're doing it so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all energy that Christ so powerfully works within me. I just watched uh, A Few Good Men. Remember Demi Moore's character? I strenuously object, Your Honor. I strenuously contend with all of my energy to present you mature, growing, faithful Christians with brains and intellect, using reason, so today I want to take Maya Angelou's declaration about most people grow old, or, or, or just grow old, they don't actually grow up. And I want to ask this question, like, what's needed and necessary to grow up in our spiritual lives? Um, said differently, what does it take to become spiritually mature? Paul talks about eating milk or, or eating meat and drinking milk, that eating meat is like for the spiritually mature, and he doesn't want these people in these churches he started to just drink milk their whole lives, he wants them to grow up. That's what I want for you. Now, of course, much could be said on this matter, and many have said many things. So I want to just offer to you a few of my thoughts on this. Um, now, I would be lying if I didn't uh, let you know that I was inspired by a book that our own Melody recommended to me. Uh, this last week, we went to Pacham um, for a silent retreat, and I was given this book. It's called The Sound of Life's Unspeakable Beauty. It is mind-blowing, <laughs> dare I say. It's so good. And also, it's got like really, really thick pages. So like just even like reading it and turning the pages, you're like, this guy was serious. And whoever published this book was also serious. And it's worthy of the pages it's written on. I'll tell you that right now. So this guy is a uh, violin maker. He's a master violin maker. And he takes like the lessons he's learned over years and years and years about trees and the process of making violins and music and beauty and art. And he like weaves back and forth between the spiritual life and these lessons that he's learned. And so I'm, I'm reading this book this week and I, was, I literally thought to myself, this is like what I've been thinking about for this sermon. Like, what would I say to you about growing up and becoming spiritually mature? So I'd be lying if I said I have not drawn heavily from this book. I will be quoting from it um, throughout, and I don't want anyone to think, if they ever read this book, huh, didn't Micah preach a sermon that sounded a lot like that? Yes, he did, and that's why. So that's where we're going to go. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about uh, what does it take to grow up? What are some, what, in my opinion, some of the elements or ideas that are going to need to be present along the way for you to be maturing and growing in your spiritual life? So first, paradox, tension, and harmonious opposites. Um, if you want to grow up instead of just grow old, you're going to have to come to grips with the fact, not only the presence of paradox and tension, but I would suggest you'll need to come to value and not 
not try to resolve paradox and tension, but actually learn to love it and appreciate it. Um, what do I mean by that? For many of us, myself included, uh, the spiritual world that I grew up in created in me the insatiable desire to resolve tension, to, to, to sort of um, eliminate paradox or, said differently, uncertainty, because that which is paradoxical is somewhat uncertain or unknowing, unknowable, right? Um, and the Christianity I was formed and shaped in, and I would argue that is still alive in the world today, was in pursuit of something, and that something was certainty. Another book I read in college, The Myth of Certainty. Um, one need to only attend seminary for a brief moment and take its seminal class, or the one that you're, you have to take to graduate, which is called systematic theology, right? God is so certain, so knowable, that we can create this system, this edifice, this structure to explain this God. I remember being in an interview at a church I used to work at, and um, this, this person asked, said to me, Micah, do you know that Christ was crucified and resurrected? And I said, well, I believe that. And they, they kept going. They're like, no, do you know this for certain? And I was like, well, I believe that's true. And they kept coming back at me. They're like, no, do you know for certain? And I'm like, do you know for certain? You weren't there. None of us were. We believe that's true. We have faith that that's true. But faith is not certainty. That, those are two very different things. I grew up in a culture, in a Christianity, that not desired isn't even the right word. Uh, pined for, longed for, sought after. Certainty. So paradox and tension, those were not friends. Those were foes. But for something to be deemed beautiful, it must contain the tension that exists between two seemingly opposing ideas. There's this guy uh, that Schleski quotes, uh, Umberto Eco, in a book called a history of beauty, and he writes, for the early Pythagoreans, we're talking the Greeks, harmony consisted in the opposition between old, odd and even, finite and infinite, unity and multiplicity, right and left, male and female, straight and curved, and so on. And Schleski goes on, he says, we grasp the harmony of opposites, not by eliminating one of the two elements, but rather by holding them together in tension. Then he uses this example of, of, he calls them harmonious opposites, passion and serenity. So think about somebody who's passionate. They just attack life with vigor. Um, in their pursuit of like dedication and, and devotion, they, they feel like they're living into their calling in doing this, right? And then on the other hand, you have a person who, who is serene. They understand that life can't be um, like wrangled, but only received, uh, they, they, they don't have a heart that fights, but rather a heart that waits expectantly. And these two ideas, passion and serenity, seem to be opposites that can only exist in two different people. But what if, what if they're two different strengths of the inner life? One good thing learning to respect the other opposing thing, understanding it as a blessing, a harmonious opposite to be held in tension. Immaturity tries to either place the two opposites on a scale and value them and determine which one is better and in predictable fashion, the one that wins consumes the other. And then when that happens, passion without serenity is insanity, right? <laughs> My wife would probably tell you that was me 20 years ago. Zeal with no wisdom. And serenity without passion is kind of like 
indifference. Or it attempts to meld the two opposites into one. Passion and serenity becomes mediocrity. You see, wisdom and maturity not only allows paradox and tension to exist, but recognizes that beauty requires the presence and value of both, learning when to allow passion to lead and when to allow serenity to lead. The interplay between the paradox, the tension, the seemingly opposite, is the ecotone where beauty and wisdom exists. So growing up and becoming mature is recognizing this fact, learning this fact. So question for you, what comes naturally to you? Like, what do you feel like is your gift, the thing that is, is your calling, the, the, that which comes most naturally to you? And then can you identify its harmonious opposite? Not like it's fallen, you know, when it goes terribly awry, but its harmonious opposite, the, sort of the other end of the spectrum, like passion and serenity. And might I invite you to learn how to love, to value both of these things? Because in between them, in the tension that lies between them, is where wisdom and beauty, and I would argue maturity, is found. So growing up includes the value and preservation of paradox and tension. And it also, I would, I would argue, includes learning the value of good questions, or questions in seeking. Psalm 69, 32 says, You who seek God, your hearts will live. Notice what the psalmist doesn't say. You who find God, you who get the answer right, you who arrive at your destination, you will live. No, no, he says, you who seek God will live. When we first started Awaken, we, we printed these bumper stickers. Um, we kind of stumbled on this one unknowingly, but the bumper sticker said permission to question. I've probably told you this story before. But I think I underestimated the value and the shaping power of these stickers on the life of our community. Said differently, Unknowingly, I, we tapped into something that I longed for in the spiritual life that I didn't know how to express. And that is that the answers, the destination, the resolution, they don't actually satisfy. Because we were made and created for longing, for searching, for adventure. You who seek God, your hearts will live. Schleski writes, the soul loses its hope in conforming. And the spirit is left with no questions. Oh, that's just devastating. He talks about like conforming in biological terms, which is called adaptation. Essentially, like in bio biological terms, adaptation is when the cell's response rate decreases until they stop reacting at all. And then he says, our set answers in spiritual matters, however calming, lead us to become lethargic. We no longer react authentically. The end result of adaptation is stagnation. And this, put this, tattoo this one on your back or somewhere on your body or just write it on your mirror. When the embers of longing have grown cold in us, what was once our faith has become the cold ashes of religious doctrine. I'm going to say that again. When the embers of longing have grown cold in us, what was once our faith becomes the cold ashes of religious doctrine. I have found that to be true. I was just on a walk with somebody the other day whose spouse was kicked out of confirmation because they asked too many questions. <laughs> and does this surprise any of us? 
That like in a Christian learning environment with young people, the one intolerable thing is the kid who has too many questions. Because if we're honest, questions and doubt are the enemy of faith, right? But that's only true if faith is actually about arriving and certainty and the destination. I would argue that questions are not the enemy or threat to the edifice and structure of life and faith because life and faith is neither a structure or an edifice. It is a journey. It's a pilgrimage. It's a movement that we were meant for. So, friends, if you arrive in life or in faith, you're done. Another word for that is death. Because this thing we're doing is not a structure or an edifice that we build. It is a process. Mandy said it. We didn't even talk about this, by the way. Kids, you're always becoming. Parents, you're always becoming. You can't step in the same river twice. It's fascinating to me in the Old Testament when you think about Israel in their story in the Exodus, when they seem to be most vibrant and alive, there's a tent of meeting that they have to take down and put up whenever the pillar and the cloud move. So they're constantly breaking camp and putting everything in their backpacks and following the spirit. And then they camp. They, they set camp. And then when the pillar and the cloud moves, they break camp again. It's like they're always on the move and God is alive and active in their midst. So growing up includes learning to value paradox and tension and what seem to be opposites. It includes the value of good questions and the search. And lastly, I would say it sees self-sufficiency as death and death as the doorway to life. What do I mean by that? The world we're living in is constantly telling you and me that the autonomous uh, self sustained, self-actualized person is like the highest good. It's the thing we're striving after. You are the sun in your universe and everything else revolves around you. You are free only when you're free from other people's perceptions or needs or priorities or perspectives. I don't even have to, to like try to convince you of this. Read the Constitution. Read the Declaration of Independence. L listen to our politicians and listen to the ads that are being like specifically made to reach you. They're telling you that you, the autonomous self, is like the, it's the cat's meow. It's what we should all be seeking for. The deep and troublesome reality is that that's a lie. Jesus says so. <laughs> that seemed really trite. The Bible says so, Micah. But actually, in this case, it does. Matthew 16, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses it for me will find it. Maybe Jesus was on to something. There's this German theologian, Fulbert Stefensky. What a great name. He says, How old must we be in order to recognize the that preoccupation with ourselves, self-actualization, does not yield a basis for living. God, that's good! It is the realistic confession that we, in and of ourselves, do not provide our own compelling agenda for life. No, I don't need to be isolated. What I need is brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, teachers and books and theories and stories to wrestle with and grapple with and to, to negotiate what is true and what is demanded of me. 
See, this is the backwards and upside down and counterintuitive nature of the kingdom of God in the way of Jesus. Self-sufficiency and autonomy, it does not lead to life or joy or fulfillment. The world will tell you that it does, and I will just keep coming back to the fact that I do not believe that it does, and I think that the way of Jesus is consistent with that. Furthermore, when we die to this belief, this lie, that autonomy and self-sufficiency is what we're after, when we die to that, that is actually the doorway to life. This is the story of Easter, like, right? Jesus, just when you think you know how the pattern goes, that suffering leads to death and death is the end, something else emerges and you didn't even see it coming. It's Jesus resurrected from the dead. That suffering and death does not lead to the end, but actually the beginning of something. Even nature itself reminds us of this fact, that death is the doorway to life. Think about seeds and trees and flowers and plants all around us, right? Jesus, in the Gospel of John, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel fall, dies, falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. No, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. And not only that, but think about seeds. You have a stack of seeds. Kids, you guys had seeds, and what did you have to do with them? You had to not only bury them, but expose them to water. It's like when you, when, you, when you put the thing that it longs for near it, it cracks open and it reaches where? Outside of itself for life. Think about what happens when you plant a seed. It cracks open and then its roots go down deep into the ground, searching for what it will bring it life, which is outside of itself. This is actually how the ancient Hebrews and the many Jews still would argue that the Bible begins. Exodus chapter 3. The Israelites are enslaved, oppressed. They are longing for something. They are searching. They are thirsting for something, for redemption, for restoration, for God. And they cry out. In Exodus chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, it says that God hears their cry. God knows them, sees them, hears them, and moves. And this is the beginning of redemption in the story of the scriptures. Maya Angelou posits that most people don't grow up, they just grow old. And my hope, my prayer, what I strenuously work for, is that you would become mature, wise in faith. Some of you have just gotten here to awaken. Welcome, I'm glad you're here. Buckle up, we're, on a, we're, going, we're going to the deep end of the pool, friends, because I want good things for you. I want you to be, I want you to be ready to take on this complex and hurting and broken world with the good news of God in Christ. And growing up, maturing, being ready for that task will take many things, but I would argue these three will be included in it. And actually, I don't even think you need to be a Christian to value the things that I've said today, which means they've got to be true. Growing up, maturing includes learning to value the tension and the paradox that we often find in life, and not to resolve it or to search insatiably for the answers, but rather to live in the midst of that tension and those paradoxes, because there, in that ecotone, is where wisdom and maturity is often found. It learns to value 
the search and the questions and the wrestling as the whole deal. That's the point. If you didn't know, Israel in Hebrew means one who wrestles with God and man and who is able. The very nature, the name of the people of God in Scripture denotes this. And it learns to see self-sufficiency as the enemy, actually something that leads to death. And only when we die to that belief and that search and that longing and that attempt do we find the doorway to life. This is the upside down and unbelievable nature of the kingdom of God. The question I have for you today is, do you believe that any of that is true? Clearly, I do. I've given my life to it. I have found it to be a worthy pursuit, something to actually anchor my life to. I'm a Christian not because I've had some crazy experience with God, but because it makes the most sense to me. And these, like, base-level ideas about what it means to grow and learn and be spiritually mature, I want them for you. And so I offer them to you for your consideration. So pray with me if you would. God, this morning, as we take some time to reflect and think, about what it means to grow up. Not just grow old where we have birthdays and years pass, but where we grow, where we become, where we learn and mature. God, I want that so badly for my friends, for those who call Awaken Home, Many who have committed to following Jesus and some who are still asking questions and not sure, God, I want that for them. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, and you would, if they are congruent and true, that they would be planted deep in the hearts of my friends, my brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, that you might illuminate something of, of this morning, something from this teaching that Uh, is for each of us. So in our silence, we turn to you. We trust that you are speaking, that you're not done, that you're still revealing yourself. And so we would ask that you do that now for us, Jesus. Well, this morning, before we move on, I wanted to um, share a song with you that I wrote actually about 10 years ago. And then just listening um, to just a beautiful message from Micah um, about a beautiful book that I love dearly as well. Um, I think about what has helped me, um, what I would have said to my younger self as I grow and mature. Um, I think I would have said this. I said it 10 years ago, not knowing that how much I would need to know it over the next 10 years. And so this is uh, my letter to us all, 
to my younger self, my older self, uh, to you all, as we are grappling with what it means to be mature and uh, and growing in our faith, especially during um, a year like we're having, like we've had. Um, this is hopefully an encouraging word for us, uh, that love is really holding on to us, and that's the only thing that we can really be certain of.
You know, as we make our way to the table for communion, I was sitting over there thinking, you might leave this message thinking I'm saying that there's nothing certain. How can we know anything? There are no answers to our questions. And that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when when I'm led to believe that the answer will satisfy me, I think it's a setup for disappointment because I've thought I had answers to questions. And then I learned something new about God or God revealed God's self to me in a way that shattered whatever answer I had found. And if that's the whole system, that's a house of cards, friends. We're made for union, intimacy. And intimacy is not an answer. It's something you cultivate. It breathes and it lives. It ebbs and it flows. That's what I want to invite you to. Not some static building that we can build, this temple of belief. I've tried it and I just, I don't, I don't think it's worth it. It doesn't satisfy. That's not what we were made for. So I want to invite you into the mystery, into the sometimes unknown, the paradox, the tension, the seemingly opposite ideas. Because there, when we wrestle with them, we, I think this is the space in which we're alive. And we're moving, pursuing. What do we know is true? I think what we know is, is true is what Jesus has revealed to us about what God is like. This is the thing I keep coming back to. If that happened, Jesus actually lived and actually died, and I'm breaking my own rules, talking about resurrection and Lent, but then was actually resurrected from the dead, game changer. And what we, what we learn about the divine is that it is infinitely compassionate. And they are infinitely loving. And they're infinitely comp uh, gracious and redemptive and restorative and kind. And care about justice and reconciliation. This is what we know to be certain about God because we see it in Jesus. So we always come back to the cross. We always come back to the bread and the wine. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. So whenever you eat of it, remember. Remember who I was, what I did, how I loved. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is a new covenant which will be written in my blood for you. A new deal between God and humanity. A new center. And whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. So friends, as we come to this table, we're reminded that this table is not the church's, but it is the Lord's, the resurrected Jesus's. And Jesus makes it ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more, those who, so if you have a little bit of faith or a lot of faith, have been here often or not for a long time or not ever before, come. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. 
So come not because I invite you, but because the Christ, the resurrected Jesus, invites you to be known, to be fed, to be put back together at the table. So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And as you take the cup, I invite you to hear these words. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Friends, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for worshiping together as one body. Um, a couple things you should know about just in terms of the life of our community, things that are happening, I'll draw your attention to. Uh, we've got a trivia night coming up, March the 13th. All these announcements and things can be found in the Awaken Weekly or the website on the calendar. So March 13th, game night, trivia night on Zoom. Uh, the link for that will be in the Awaken Weekly, 8 p.m., also coming up uh, next Sunday, not today, but next Sunday, worship night. Mel leads that on Zoom, 8.30 on Sunday night. And then last but not least, I want to draw your attention. We partner um, and, and uh, have a friendship with a group, uh, organization called 40 Orchards. They lead our Bible studies once a month on Sunday nights. And uh, they're leading a, uh, offering a Seder meal. So if you've never experienced that, this is the kind of traditional Jewish Passover meal. Uh, that Jesus would have been eaten with his friends um, when he did that, uh, which is a whole nother deal. Um, but March 31st, so Wednesday of Holy Week, 40 Orchards is offering a Seder meal. And if you're interested in that, you've never done it, um, it'll be virtual, so anybody can join. Um, and you can go to 40, the number, 40orchards.org, and just look in their like upcoming events tab, and you'll be able to find information on that. So we wanted to make that known to you that that's coming. Um, miss you. Um, looking forward to seeing you. Uh, I'll say we're like real close this week. Um, we've got some decisions to make and hopefully next week we'll be announcing kind of our plan to have some gatherings in person, which is exciting. So um, stay tuned for that. But as you go, uh, receive this benediction, this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The church said together, amen. Grace and peace, friends. See you next week.